Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Salem, Oregon. Salem serves as the capital of the state and is located in the center of the Willamette Valley with the Willamette River running along the north side of the city. The river is the largest river in North America that is entirely contained in one state. Established in 1842, the city is now the third largest in the state with a population of almost 200,000 residents. There is no definitive agreement among historians as to where the name came from, but the two most popular are that it is an anglicized version of the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace, or it was a truncated version of Jerusalem. Agriculture has always played a significant role in the economy and is nicknamed the Cherry City because of the past importance of the local cherry growing industry. Salem also sits on the 45th parallel, which is the exact middle point between the equator at the center of the Earth and the North Pole. Salem, also known as Tree City USA, is home to Sal the Pioneer, a mascot that sits atop the Capitol building, as well as many government officials state politicians, and lawyers. The residents of Salem are known for their family values, hard work, and generosity. But in 1989, the murder of one honorable and fearless state official who believed honesty was a requirement for every public servant taught Oregonians that not all hard work gets rewarded. We didn't start out intending to have this be a two-part episode, but there was a lot of information out there. And as we researched and developed the story, we realized we had to do it in two episodes. So we hope you enjoy part one. Michael Frankie made his way to Salem, Oregon by way of New Mexico. Although he was a native of Kansas City, Missouri, he attended New Mexico Highlands University on a football scholarship. He graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in a combined major of political science, economics, German, and French. Then he went to Charlottesville, Virginia to attend law school at the University of Virginia on an academic scholarship and graduated with a law degree in 1971. He was admitted to the Virginia Bar that same year, but for the next three years, he served as a lawyer in the Judge Advocate General's Office in the U.S. Navy, also known as a JAG lawyer, at the Long Beach Naval Station, Terminal Island, in Southern California. After leaving the Navy, Michael was admitted to the bar in New Mexico and in 1975 began working as an assistant attorney general and counsel to the New Mexico Corrections Department, which oversaw the state's prisons. 
On February 2nd and 3rd, 1980, a deadly prison riot broke out at the penitentiary of New Mexico in Santa Fe. Inmates took complete control of the prison, and 12 corrections officers were taken hostage. Police regained control of the facility 36 hours after the riots began, but by then 33 prisoners had been killed and more than 200 were treated for injuries. None of the 12 officers taken hostage were killed, but seven suffered severe injuries. It remains the most violent prison riot in U.S. history. You know, Kathy, after I read about the riot, I wanted to look it up to see what had caused it. So it was kind of the same issues that you hear about. It's prison overcrowding. They didn't have the prisoner services that they wanted to have. And in this case, too, first-time offenders were not separated from violent offenders. Yeah. But the interesting thing, too, is that apparently it was very unsanitary, too. They had a prevalence of cockroaches and mice running through the prison and the kitchens at all times. And there was a warden from another state who was visiting this penitentiary, and he said it was the filthiest institution he had ever seen. And interestingly, Kathy, you said seven of the 12 prison guards were severely injured. Right. The other five who were not were actually protected by other inmates. Interesting. I can't imagine being a prison guard. I was in L.A. County Jail one time. And no, oh, for what? N- not as an inmate. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard about your arrest. A friend gave me a tour when I had just graduated from law school. And honest to God, it was terrifying. At one point, we were in a module that held violent criminals. And imagine you're going down a hallway and on, on one side is a wall and on the other side are the prison cells. And so I am following this guy down the row and he says, don't act like you know me. Don't call my name. Don't touch me. Just follow me. They're going to assume that you're from like the ACLU and you're looking at jail conditions. So I follow him. It was the scariest walk I had ever taken in my life. So I am walking and they are hooting and hollering and reaching through the bars. And he's walking in front of me, just ignoring everything. He's just walking quickly. I'm walking quickly about five paces behind him. We get to the door on the other end and I almost have a panic attack. I'm like, I can't go back. I can't go back. And he was like, get a hold of yourself. You're going back because we had to go out. You had to leave. I I was like, isn't there a fire escape exit? We something we could take. Anyway, so we turn around, we go back. And I just remember thinking like, okay, when I have kids, if they're naughty, this is where they're getting a tour of. Scared straight. Yeah. And fast forward years later, I had a bunch of naughty children (laughs) and I never took them on a tour of the county jail. (laughs) That's because you were too tired having five to be driving up and down to the jail all the time. (laughs) I was too lazy. Instead, I just took a bar of Irish spring and washed out their molars. (laughs) As Deputy Attorney General, Michael Frankie was in charge of the probe into the 1980 prison riot but had to turn the investigation over to others when New Mexico Governor Bruce King appointed him to be a judge for the 1st District Court in Santa Fe. In 1983, Michael was asked to step down as judge and become the New Mexico Corrections Secretary to completely revamp the New Mexico prison system. And Kath, this was because this guy was above reproach. He had a stellar reputation for always doing the right thing and making the difficult decisions that were just and proper. Four years after taking the helm of the New Mexico prison system in May 1987, then-Oregon Governor Neil Goldschmidt hired 40-year-old Michael Frankie as the director of the Oregon Corrections Department and was given the daunting task of addressing significant problems within the department. Now, Kath, just prior to Michael starting in this position, the Oregon legislature had passed a package of bills that were aimed at improving the prison system. So he kind of came in at the perfect time in terms of resources that were being given to the department 
There were three budget bills that provided an additional $220 million for daily operations. There was a bill that increased the number of staff to handle a larger prison population. And then other bills allocated funding for expanding existing institutions or building new minimum security facilities throughout the state. So even though there was problems, the legislature was still willing to put money behind it. And this package was something that the governor had pushed through. So on Tuesday, January 17, 1989, Michael Frankie had been the director of the Oregon Department of Corrections for almost 15 months. That day, Michael spent most of the afternoon in meetings with his staff and department heads at the Dome Building, which was a historic building on the grounds of the Oregon State Hospital, which was the state's largest mental health hospital, and it was where the Corrections Department administration offices were located. Kath, it wasn't officially named the Dome Building, but everybody referred to it as the Dome Building because it had a dome much like a state capitol. It just wasn't as grand as a capital dome. At about 5.45 p.m., the main meeting broke up, and Michael returned to his own office to discuss budget matters with Dave Cawley, head of the Administrative Services Division, and Elise Claussen, Assistant Director of Community Services. At about 6.30, Elise went back to her office on the other side of the building, and Michael and Dave stayed because they had more business to talk about. Shortly after midnight, Michael Frankie was found dead on the grounds of the Dome Building. At a hastily pulled-together press conference on Wednesday afternoon, January 18, 1989, Marion County District Attorney Dale Penn said Michael's body was discovered by security but would not say precisely where the body was found. D.A. Penn also refused to identify the cause of death, but said it was clear that some form of violence was used and the case was being investigated as a homicide. The district attorney also said on Wednesday night that investigators did not find a weapon and they did not have any suspects at that time. Governor Goldschmidt said it was a sad day for Oregon. Michael Frankie dedicated his life to making Oregon a safer place to live. The next day, journalists Janet Davies and David Steves with the Statesman Journal wrote that Michael was killed by an assailant who stabbed him in the heart. He was apparently attacked where he parked and, bleeding profusely, was trying to return to the building before collapsing on a porch at the side entrance to the building that was primarily used by staff. Dr. Larry Lumen, the state medical examiner, conducted an autopsy on Wednesday and determined that Michael also suffered other external and internal injuries. Dr. Lumen said authorities asked him not to disclose the details about the autopsy, so he declined to state whether there were signs of a struggle. In the same article, Marion County District Attorney Dale Penn, who was heading the investigation, said they were trying to keep some information quiet as investigative leads because they were receiving a lot of input from the public. As a result, the district attorney declined to give details of what investigators found and whether Michael Frankie had been in a struggle or had been robbed. Michael was the first Oregon official to be killed since State Police Superintendent Holly Holcomb was gunned down as he was walking to the police headquarters in Salem in 1975. Apparently, a disgruntled former state trooper was convicted of his murder and sentenced to life in prison, but was paroled in 1984. So, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess like in Oregon, like life actually means eight or nine years. That's crazy. <laughs> the day after Michael's murder, his wife, Bingta, returned to Salem from California and talked to the police. Bingta and Michael had been married a little more than a year and a half when Michael was murdered. 
They had gotten married just weeks before they moved to Oregon in May of 1987 when Michael took over as the director of the corrections department. They had met that January in New Mexico. Bingta, who was 30 at the time, was working in a restaurant, and Michael, who was 12 years her senior, had stopped there with his adolescent son to grab a bite to eat. They met, fell in love, and fewer than five months later, Bingta was pregnant. For a while, things between the two of them had been fine, but there had been problems from the beginning. On December 27, 1988, just weeks before he was killed, he wrote to his parents to let them know that he and Bingta had agreed to a trial separation. In his letter, he told his parents Bingta was going to visit her mother in Fresno in January and was planning to look for a job and an apartment. After Bingta returned from the visit, they were going to separate their property and she would go back down to Fresno. He said they were leaving the door open to a reconciliation, but at that point, they were not optimistic. And that is where Bingta was on the morning of January 18th when she got the news. When authorities searched Michael's effects, they discovered that she would be receiving a lot of insurance money, which raised eyebrows. Sources close to the investigation said that Michael had a state life insurance policy, which, with its triple indemnity clause, was worth about $900,000. And today's dollars, Kathy? Almost $2.2 million. Damn. That's a lot of cheddar. <laughs> a lot of caja. <laughs> Naturally, the state police were interested, so when Bingta arrived in Salem the day after the murder, they put her through several hours of questioning and she took a polygraph exam. She passed the polygraph, leaving the investigators with no lingering doubts about her involvement in her husband's murder. Can you imagine being told your husband died, she flies to another state, and then they interrogate her and put her through a polygraph? Four days later, detectives were still looking for leads as to who Michael's killer was. Journalist Dan Postrel with the Statesman Journal said the epicenter of the investigation was at the Oregon State Police Communications Center because this is where the investigative tips were being received. As we mentioned, Marion County District Attorney Penn asked anyone with information to call the police, specifically anyone who saw Michael between 6 p.m. and midnight on the night of his murder. Investigators said they had very few leads to begin the investigation and were hoping useful information would come from some of the phone calls. Journalists were told that criminologists at the state crime labs in Eugene and Portland were analyzing blood samples, hairs, fibers, and anything that had been collected at the crime scene. On January 23, 1989, funeral services were held at St. Francis Cathedral in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Michael Frankie was survived by his wife, Bingta, their 15-month-old son, as well as a son and a daughter from a prior marriage. The crowd of more than 300 people included two former New Mexico governors, legislators, judges, and prosecutors. Oregon Governor Neil Goldschmidt was also in attendance. Michael's brother Patrick was in tears as he thanked everyone for the outpouring of love for his brother. He described Michael as a rare human being, a leader with a vision, and a friend with compassion. He fought battles with truth to expose ignorance and inequality. Patrick also spoke of his brother as someone who liked to ride dirt bikes, drink brewskis. <laughs> brewskis. I know, I love that. <laughs> wrestle with his kids and rescue damsels in distress. Michael Frankie was buried at the Santa Fe National Cemetery with military honors. Oregon Governor Goldschmidt said after the funeral mass that every town in Oregon was in mourning. Quote, it reminds me that some people make an enormous difference in a short period of time. He was smarter than the rest of us by a lot. 
but he never made us feel that way. He was a genuine, larger-than-life person, and there was no way to explain the tragedy of his death. But there would be no peace until his assailant was caught, end quote. That same day, more than 500 people attended a memorial service for Michael at St. Mark Lutheran Church in Salem, Oregon. Approximately 150 were Corrections Department employees, some of whom were prison guards wearing their uniforms. Also in the audience were friends, legislators, and state and local government officials. One week after Michael Frankie's murder, investigators released a description of a suspect. Journalist Dan Postrel called the description sketchy because the witness said he was standing in a parking lot about 75 yards away, and at 7 p.m. in January, it was already dark. Marion County District Attorney Penn said the man was last seen running from a Department of Corrections parking lot around 7 p.m. within the time frame of Michael's attack. The man was described as having dark hair and was wearing dark pants and a light-colored coat that extended below his waist. District Attorney Penn said that they had additional details but kept the suspect's description general in an effort to produce as many tips from the public as possible. Major Dean Renfro of the state police said about 20 officers from his agency were assigned to the case and were working with three investigators from the attorney general's office and two officers each from the Marion County Sheriff's Department and the Salem Police Department. Now, Kath, the reason that there were so many from the state police is that because this happened on state property and a state building, the state police were technically the cock of the walk. You love that phrase. Actually, you do. (laughs) (laughs) It just makes me laugh. (laughs) Now, according to a piece in the Oregonian five months after Michael's death, police said they believed that the dark-haired man in the dark pants and light-colored top was the person who murdered Michael Frankie. However, in the same article, police acknowledged they were also looking for a nice-looking, olive-skinned man in a pinstripe suit who was seen inside the dome building about 6.30 p.m. This was about a half an hour before they believed Michael was killed. According to the description released to the press, the man was well-groomed with black hair cut above the ears and a mustache. His suit was described as black or navy blue. Marion County District Attorney Penn wanted to speak with this person because of all the people known to be in the dome building shortly before the murder, he was the only person they could not identify. McCath, neither the police nor the news accounts at this time actually pointed out that at 6.30 p.m. the doors of the dome building would have been locked for an hour and a half. So this man had either been inside the building since closing time or he had a key. Now, the other thing that came out is District Attorney Penn said the man that they were looking for was not considered a suspect. You know what's interesting about a lot of the articles I read? They kept saying the district attorney was in charge of the investigation. Now, many district attorneys do have investigators who work for their deputy DAs and do work for them and interview witnesses for them, but it's the state police agencies who are in charge. So I did not know when I was reading these newspaper articles if DA Penn had more power and authority than customary. I mean, it's police agencies who are supposed to investigate or if the journalists were simply mischaracterizing his role because he was the one coming out, giving all the press conferences and informing the public. I agree. But, Kath, I can't believe that that many journalists, especially journalists in the state house who are used to dealing with politicians and judges and attorneys, that they would make that mistake over and over without being corrected. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't everything, know. Everything said he was, was a, in charge of the investigation. Right. But it's just a little odd to me. Just because you've never heard of it doesn't mean it's odd. <laughs> <laughs> it's odd. <laughs> 
obviously they have juice and they play a role, but but you to know, lead the whole thing, right? Like he's I, calling the shots, is what right, it sounds that, like. That's how he came across in all the articles I read. On February 20th, 1989, just over a month after Michael's death, an article in the Santa Fe New Mexican newspaper by journalist Dan Postrel said that Patrick Frankie, Michael's older brother, had known no peace since his brother was stabbed to death. What tormented Patrick was that with 30 police detectives working full-time on the case, who, according to the police, had talked to one to 2,000 people at that point, had still not named a suspect. He said he had not slept a good night's sleep since the murder, thinking through everything over and over. Not knowing was the hardest part. In an article just a month after Michael's death, Oregon State Police Major Dean Renfro said the number of investigators looking into Michael Frankie's murder would be reduced to 15, cutting the number of detectives in half. Major Renfro said the flood of phone tips and interviews that initially kept the detectives busy had slowed, resulting in fewer resources needed. District Attorney Penn said that although the investigation had not produced a suspect's name, the interviews had ruled out many possible suspects. Penn said police still considered robbery or revenge to be the primary motives. And although Michael worked in law enforcement in New Mexico before relocating to Oregon two years before his murder, their investigation was focused on potential suspects in Oregon. Yeah, Kathy, one of the things that was out there, and I know you probably read this too, is that when Michael Frankie was in New Mexico as head of their correction system, he was battling the mafia at some point. Oh, in New Mexico? In New Mexico. And I guess he'd Like made... the Italian mafia. Or the Mexican mafia. Oh, yeah, true. For sure. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> With all my criminal affiliations, I know these things. Exactly. <laughs> After Michael was killed, there was some initial speculation of had somebody come from New Mexico because his guard was down, he was no longer interacting with them directly, and hopefully he hadn't been paying attention. Now, this was something that the police had been kind of looking at in Oregon, but obviously they were focused more on Oregon suspects than they were on another state. Right. A couple days after Major Renfro announced that he was cutting the police detectives, on February 22, 1989, it was reported that a potential material witness to Michael Frankie's murder was arrested the day before. Chris Kierens was serving 22 years for burglary, forgery, theft, and drug offenses at the Oregon State Penitentiary and had been placed in a drug and alcohol treatment program at the Oregon State Hospital. Remember, the dome building is on the grounds of the Oregon State Hospital. Right. Investigators have been interviewing state hospital patients and workers, asking whether they saw anything significant on the hospital grounds on the night of Michael's murder. And Kieran's was of interest because he was out on a pass that night, but he never returned to the hospital and was arrested because of it. So, Kath, my understanding is that he was in a court-ordered drug program. And so he was able to leave the hospital for certain periods of time, but he had to come back and stay there and participate in the program. Well, he just took off and didn't come back. Um, so did he dip? Oh, Kathy, Kathy, <laughs> Kathy. You started it, started it, started it. <laughs> so anyway, Kath, what was interesting was anyone who was a potential material witness, and that's what they were calling everybody. Nobody was a suspect. Exactly. Everyone was a potential material witness. You know, they made the paper. And so this guy in particular basically said, hey, look, I fled the program and I didn't want to return. I and, dipped from the program. That's right. He dipped. I dipped from the program and I didn't return because I was afraid that I was going to be made a scapegoat for this murder. He realized the murder happened while he was gone. And nothing appears to have ever come of Kieran's again. 
but it just showed that the press was glomming onto any possible how, person. What, is, what does this show? I think you're absolutely right, Kathy, because the police aren't giving them anything. The district attorney who is heading the investigation has locked everything down tight. Anybody they talk to, and they've interviewed thousands of people. All well, they're like doing one to two thousand, to be fair. But yeah, right, that's right. thousands. Yeah, you're right. And the fact is, is that they haven't given a single name, and those that leak out, right, are material witnesses. Yeah. So it's like it's the press was glomming onto anything. The editors are looking for whatever they can. Exactly. They need to sell papers. Exactly. Just over two months after Michael Frankie was murdered, so on March 22, 1989, a man was arrested during a burglary just south of Salem, and he told sheriff's deputies while they were taking him to jail that he knew who killed Michael. This guy's name was Lars Skilbred Jr., and he told detectives, we got him. A knife through the heart. Fricky is dead. New Mexico did it. While Skilbred was being booked, he made more references to Fricky, and when asked who Fricky was, Skilbred said it was the corrections director who was stabbed in the heart outside of his office building in Salem. According to Wire reports, after Skilbred was released on his own recognizance after being charged with first-degree burglary and an unauthorized use of a motor vehicle, he spoke to the press. He said he picked up a man who was hitchhiking just south of Portland and gave him a ride to the Turner area, about 10 miles southeast of Salem. He said he only knew the man's first name as Joe. And while the hitchhiker sat in the front seat of his car, injecting heroin, by the way. As one would do. Correct. (laughs) Joe told Skilbred that he had been paid by people from New Mexico to stab Michael Frankie. Skilbred said Joe was Hispanic and described him as a professional killer and a gentleman. (laughs) Skilbred was always called a potential material witness, and the investigation seems to have gone nowhere because we couldn't find any further newspaper articles about it. State police detective Lauren Glover, who was one of the detectives working on the murder case, said officers took such comments seriously and would investigate Skilbred to see if he knows anything about the crime. The investigators had a lot of people make secondhand statements like this, and they investigated each and every one. Investigator Glover said they were not willing to take any chances when it came to finding Michael's murderer. He also said that at this point, there were only eight investigators still working on the case, and while they were still running down leads, so far, the leads had led only to the elimination of suspects. Detective Glover also said investigators had chased some leads back to New Mexico, but without success. Journalist Teresa Novak with the Statesman Journal wrote on April 5th, 1989, that Michael Frankie's older brother, Patrick, revealed that his family had contacted a Florida psychic to help solve his brother's murder. He said at this point, the family was grasping at straws to try to find out who was responsible. Kevin Frankie, Michael's younger brother, ran a contracting business on the west coast of Florida. He thought it would help him if he learned more about homicide investigations in general so he turned to his local police in his hometown. While there, he heard detectives talking about a woman who was a psychic who had found missing persons and homicide victims. Patrick would only say that the woman did not accept fees beyond travel expenses and would only work with someone with the approval of the law enforcement agency investigating the case. Marion County District Attorney Penn said he had no objections and it would not be the first time a psychic had been involved in an unsolved homicide in the county. 
District Attorney Penn also said that the detectives working on Michael's murder case traveled to FBI headquarters in Virginia to consult experts in a technique called profiling of homicide suspects. Remember, this is 1989. Mm -hmm. DA Penn said it was a tool, but it's really only guesswork. Patrick Frankie said he wouldn't mind a little educated guesswork to fill in the gaps surrounding his brother's death. Patrick said that they did not feel like the authorities in Oregon were cooperating with the family. And Kath, this is because the family had been asking for a copy of the autopsy report, and they were just kind of getting the runaround. He said the family was finally able to get a heavily redacted version of the autopsy. And Kath, by heavily redacted, he means of eight pages, only three of them were readable. Everything else had been blacked out. And so Patrick said basically what the autopsy told them is Michael was perfectly healthy, except for the hole in his heart from being stabbed to death. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Almost three months after Michael Frankie's murder, on April 12th, 1989, his parents, Edward and Helen Frankie, wrote a letter to the editors of Oregon newspapers urging state lawmakers to approve a $50,000 reward to catch their son's killer. Dr. and Mrs. Frankie said, in part, Mike was our son and we loved him dearly. Just as any parent loves his child and would want the killer or kidnapper or rapist of that child caught and punished, we want to see justice done. But Mike was more than our son. He was a public servant of the state of Oregon in a tough and dangerous job. He had worked long and hard to rebuild your prison system and it may have cost him his life. If Mike was killed in the line of duty, if he died as we suspect, because of some knowledge of wrongdoing within the state, then the problem and the peril remain. Solving this murder would then have far-reaching ramifications. Four days after Michael's parents sent the letter, Marion County District Attorney Dale Penn publicly acknowledged for the first time that investigators had interviewed a paroled Oregon State Penitentiary inmate in connection with Michael's death. Johnny Krause, who was released from prison one month before Michael was killed after serving eight years of a 20-year sentence for robberies, had been rearrested for parole violations. D.A. Penn refused to say if Krause was a suspect, a witness, an informant, or whether he was even still being investigated. Penn only would say it was a continuing investigation. On April 17, 1989, exactly three months after Michael's murder, journalist Phil Stanford with the Oregonian newspaper wrote that Michael Frankie's brothers, Patrick and Kevin, were keeping an angry and frustrated eye on Oregon. There had been no arrests and Marion County DA Penn remained tight-lipped about the status of the case. 
Penn did say that the presumed motive in the case still remained revenge or robbery, although Patrick Frankie maintained that his brother was not killed in a robbery or random street crime. Patrick said Michael would have known who it was that came to him, and such familiarity would be necessary to get close enough to Michael, who was six foot three, 215 pounds, in order to harm him or to lure him away from his car. Patrick also told journalist Stanford that he thought his brother might have been investigating something illegal involving someone in Oregon or possibly state government. On June 12, 1989, almost five months after his younger brother Michael was murdered, Patrick received a collect call from an Oregon jail from Johnny Krause, the parolee who police were questioning. The week before the collect call, Patrick sent Krause a letter telling him that he had been on Patrick's mind for the past several weeks and there were many things Patrick wanted to know that he believed Krause could tell him. Patrick said while it would not bring his brother back, it would ease his mind and help his mom and dad come to terms with Michael's death. During the collect call, Krause told Patrick that he was not the one who killed his brother. The two talked for about 15 minutes and Krause continued to insist that he did not kill Michael. Krause said that on February 17th, a month after the murder, Krause was called in along with a hundred or so other former convicts who had been on leave or parole at the time of the murder and given a lie detector test. Krause said he passed. He also told Patrick that investigators asked him for hair samples because they said Michael was found with hair in his hands and under his fingernails. Krause said he gave investigators the hair samples and the test came back negative. Krause also told Patrick that Michael was onto something big and that's what got him killed. When Patrick asked for details, Krause said he was afraid to say much more because the phone line was tapped, but told Patrick that he requested a meeting with Marion County DA Dale Penn and assured Patrick he would tell the district attorney everything he knew when they met. Now, two days later, journalist Stanford published part two of what would be three articles. They were released over the course of a week. One was Monday, one was Wednesday, one was Friday. So this is Wednesday's article. In it, Stanford revealed a conversation that Michael Frankie had with his younger brother, Kevin, who, as we mentioned, ran a construction business in Florida. A few weeks before Michael was killed, he called his brother, and Kevin said he was surprised by the call because he and his brother usually did not discuss business. Michael told him he was working on a lot of new plans, and after the first of the year, he would be restructuring his department. Kevin recounted that Michael told him a lot of heads were going to roll, and he planned to move a lot of people out of his department. Among others, he was planning to fire his assistant director, a man named Dick Peterson, who had been named interim director of the corrections department after Michael's death. Kevin told journalist Stanford that when he asked Michael what the problem was, Michael responded that he believed there was an organized criminal element in Oregon. Kevin asked him if he meant the mafia, and Michael said no, but still an organized criminal element, and he needed to replace those people who worked with him with people who he could trust. Then, four days before the murder, Michael called Kevin again, but this time it was Kevin's wife, Katie, who answered the phone. Katie said Michael told her he was causing trouble out in Oregon. In Michael's words, he said he was stirring things up, and Katie teased him that he had already done that in New Mexico and ought to be used to it. His reply to her, though, was, no, Katie, this is different. Journalist Stanford also reported that the weekend before Michael was killed, he was on the phone with his wife, Bingta, who, as we mentioned, was in Fresno with her mother. 
Michael told Bingta he had been at home on Saturday, three days before his murder, test firing what he referred to as the riot gun. Now, more than a year before, a child murderer had escaped from prison and Michael was issued a 12-gauge shotgun, but he had never bothered to try it out. But for some reason, he was doing it now. Just hours after his body was found, lying on the side porch of the corrections building by the staff entrance, state police drove to Michael's home. In the master bedroom, on one side of the bed, they discovered a shotgun and a case of shells, and under the pillow was a loaded 45. Michael was clearly concerned about something, but they did not know what, and they did not know why. Okay, so as we said, Marion County District Attorney Dale Penn was always talking about robbery and revenge being the motive. However, it was highly unlikely that it was a robbery because Michael was found wearing a Rolex watch and his wallet was still in his pocket. And the driver's side door to Michael's vehicle was found open. However, nothing appeared to have been taken from the car. It was suggested by the district attorney that the second motive, revenge, could possibly be for disciplinary action Michael had taken during a mini-riot in a women's prison or the midnight transfers of inmates to Washington prisons designed to reduce overcrowding at Oregon's maximum security penitentiary. Penn said the move inconvenienced a lot of families. And that was the word he used, inconvenienced. That's an awful soft word. It's a soft word. For it to be revenge to the point that you're killing somebody. Exactly. I agree. But neither of Penn's proposed motives touched on the possible organized crime element mentioned by Michael's younger brother, Kevin. Michael's older brother, Patrick, told KOIN-TV in Portland that there was a terrible cloud of suspicion that had fallen over the investigation into his brother's murder because certain state employees refused to take a lie detector test as part of the investigation. One of those who refused was Michael's deputy, Dick Peterson. And this was the person that Michael told Kevin he was going to remove from the position. So, Kath, according to that three-part series... In the Oregonian? Exactly. Stanford, the journalist, reported that he asked Dick Peterson why he had reportedly refused to take a polygraph regarding Michael Frankie's murder. Peterson responded, no comment. So, Kathy, what was interesting is he may have told Stanford no comment But apparently when the district attorney said to Peterson, hey, I want you to take this test, Peterson's response was, I'm innocent. There's no reason for me to do it. So not only did he refuse to do it once or twice, he'd actually refused to do it three times. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And many people wondered why Michael Frankie's deputy, Dick Peterson, who had been appointed the acting director after Michael's murder, was refusing. Well, and especially because, Kath, The authorities had already been able to determine that at 7 o'clock, which, as we mentioned, is the time they think that Michael was killed. Right. Peterson was actually at a restaurant in downtown having dinner. Right. So they already knew that he wasn't the one who did the stabbing, and yet he was still refusing it. Exactly. The journalist pointed out that the corrections department, of which Peterson was the highest official now, routinely used polygraph exams in their own investigations. So Michael's surviving wife, Bengta, asked the district attorney if he would make the same request to take the polygraph of two other officials, Dave Colley and Tom Fuller, who were also in the dome building the night her husband was murdered. And remember, Dave Colley was who Michael was last seen with. Right. He was the guy he was last meeting with. Correct. The district attorney agreed that it might be a good idea. Bing! The light bulb went on above his head. <laughs> Was it because Bing Ta said something? <laughs> Could have been. 
And the reason Bingta and others wanted Peterson, Colley, and Fuller to take a lie detector test is because the three were involved in what journalist Stanford said could only be described as a strangely inept search for Michael on the night of his murder. As we talked about in the beginning of this episode, Michael had been in meetings most of the day, but at around 6.30 p.m., the meetings began to break up. Now, Elise Clausen, the assistant director of community services, who we said had been in the meeting with Michael and Dave Colley, she left to go home about 7.15 p.m. She said she and her secretary, Mary Blake, left the dome building together. It was dark outside, and they could see Michael Frankie's car on the circular drive where the corrections executives parked their cars, and there weren't any other cars around it. Cap, I am assuming the circular drive is right in front of the dome building. Correct. Like you walk out the front doors and that's where the drive is and it's not meant for parking except for the executives. Right, except the fancy people. Right, exactly. Not us. The driver's door was wide open and the dome light in the car was on. Elise and Mary walked over to the car and after some discussion went inside the building to look for Michael. So first they tried his office door. It was locked and nobody answered when they were shouting for him. They then called his pager twice and got no response. I know the day of pagers. I never got that. Well, the only people who had them at the time were detectives, doctors, drug Drug dealers. dealers. (laughs) (laughs) D-cubed. There you go. (laughs) Sometime before 8 p.m., Elise and Mary called Roby Eldridge, the public affairs director, who alerted Peterson, Colley, and Fuller that Michael could not be found, but his car was still there and had been found with the door open. Elisa and Mary were sent home, and Peterson and Colley, who had both left for the night, went back to the dome building, where they conducted what Dick Peterson would later describe as a meticulous search. So, Kath, the only problem with calling the search meticulous was that Peterson and Colley missed Michael's body. So if you're facing the front of the dome building, if you go off to the right, about 40 feet, and it's just around the corner of the building, so you can't see it from the front, but it is just tucked on the side, that's where the staff entrance was. And that's where he was trying to go through. That's where Michael was trying to get through. Right. So he was found on the porch of this entrance right in front of the door. So, Kath, was his car closer to the main entrance of the dome? It was. However, he knew that once the doors were locked, it was only staff left in the building and they wouldn't be using those doors. So he was trying to get to the staff entrance. That's the assumption. So Michael gets to the entrance has to walk up like four or five steps and punches a hole through the glass to try to get in. Correct. So Peterson, Colley, and Fuller did not see Michael. They did not search the inside of the building because they would have seen the glass and the hole in the window of the door. Kelly, what about a blood trail? Like, did There you... was no mention of it, which really surprised okay, me. Okay, so I didn't see a single news article that talked about it, and I thought that was odd. So you didn't either? I didn't either. Okay. Yeah. So the other thing that's interesting, Kathy, is we're looking at this. And just so everybody is very clear, we're reporting what was reported. Correct. We're not reading into it yet because, you know, we will. Right. (laughs) But at the time right now, honestly, we're just trying to gather the facts of the case. Right. So Bing to Frankie talked to journalist Phil Stanford with The Oregonian and told him that Dick Peterson had called her on Wednesday night, July 18th. This is the day her husband was found Mm -hmm. to offer his condolences. And Kathy, she'd already been told her husband was murdered because Michael's brother Patrick called her early Wednesday morning to let her know what happened. Now, Bingta said Dick Peterson told her during the call that on the day her husband was killed, there had been a director's meeting that afternoon starting shortly after 1 p.m. And when the meeting broke up, everyone went back to their own offices. Before leaving, Peterson said he stuck his head in Michael's office to say goodbye. And Michael had told him he was out of there as soon as he called Bingta. Now, Peterson told Bingta that a little bit later when he walked outside of the building to leave, he noticed Michael's car door open. 
So Peterson said he assumed that Michael had gone back into the building for something, and so he closed the car door and went to dinner. But this does conflict with what we've reported earlier, is that the car was found with the door open and the dome light on. Now, on his way home, Peterson said he stopped by the dome building and Michael's car was still there, so he got together a group of people who were working late and conducted a search of the building. Bingta also commented on the fact that Peterson had mentioned that when he talked to Michael to say goodnight, Michael told him that he was going to call Bingta before he left. Now, remember, they were separated, and Bingta said she had talked to Michael that weekend, and they had agreed he would call her on Wednesday, the day after. So Bingta said she had no reason to expect a call from Michael on the night of his murder, and she didn't think anything more about it. Interestingly, Kathy, Kevin Frankie, who was Michael's younger brother, Mm -hmm. told journalist Stanford that he also got a call from Dick Peterson and he took notes on the call because, remember, he had already spoken to his brother before he was killed. And Michael had told him that he was going to get rid of Dick Peterson because he was kind of part of the old guard that he didn't trust. That's so interesting. Yeah. And not only was he writing down what he said, he was writing down the times that were given. Oh, interesting. Everything got written down. Now, according to Kevin, Dick Peterson said that the meeting broke up about 6.30 p.m., at which time Peterson said he went back to his office to take care of some paperwork. When he walked outside, and in Kevin's notes, Peterson had told him it was 6.48 p.m. Wow, that's specific. (laughs) Yes, it is. It's also before they assumed the murder happened. Right. He saw the door to Michael's car standing open. And again, assuming that Michael had just gone back inside, he closed and now locked the door and went back into the building. Then Kevin said Peterson told him that he and several other employees who were still at work searched the building inside and out. After calling Michael's pager, they give up their search between 8 and 8.30 p.m., assuming that Michael was at some non-official dinner and didn't want to be disturbed. What disturbed Kevin, though, was that in view of the fact that Michael, like all corrections officials, was engaged in a high-risk business, no one had bothered to call the police. So Kevin asked Peterson about it, and he said, no, 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 we contacted security. But what he did not tell Kevin is that security for the dome building was a watchman from the communication center at the state hospital. So, Kath, what it was is in this communication center, remember, the Oregon State Hospital, largest mental health hospital in Oregon. Right. They had a communication center where they had staff who were there who a couple times during the night would just kind of walk the grounds. They had a two-way walkie-talkie and just kind of walked around to make sure no patients were out, anything was amiss. That sounds really spooky. (laughs) I would never do that. You're supposed to take phone calls and be a communication center. And P.S. You got to walk around the grounds by yourself and in, in the dark for a check mental for hospital. Patients. Yes, yeah. that sounds scary. <laughs> Who have escaped? <laughs> so what I read is that the staff member from the communication center, he was just walking around. It was about midnight, I think he said. And as he walked over toward the dome building, he just glanced over because the light was on and he saw a large body there. Now, of course, he didn't know what it was. He thought it might have been a homeless person. It could have been a patient from the hospital who'd gotten out. And he said as he walked up, he saw the person there, pale white, and the person had clearly fallen. So they had tried to get up the steps and maybe fell. And he had a big bump on his head. His glasses were smashed. And so he got on his walkie-talkie and had the communication center call 911. Because again, remember, 1989, there are no cell phones. Right. Now, remember, we also talked about the nice-looking olive-skinned man in the pinstripe suit who was in the dome building, but authorities were unable to identify him? I remember. Okay, good. (laughs) That was a long sentence getting there for you. (laughs) Police presume the man was just visiting a corrections official, and once he heard that the police were looking for him, he would come forward and clear up any confusion. 
as of mid-June 1989, so five months after Michael's murder, this man's identity was still a mystery. According to the corrections employees who saw him inside the building, the man said he was waiting for an appointment with someone, but nobody who spoke to him could remember with whom he was meeting. The state police also commissioned one of Oregon's best police artists to draw a composite from witness descriptions, but while they showed it to the employees of the dome building calf, they refused to release it to the public. Did you read why? No. That's so odd. It's so odd. Yeah. On June 23, 1989, five months after Michael's death, journalist Phil Stanford broke the story about a prison guard at the Oregon State Penitentiary. His name was Dave Larson, and he worked at the penitentiary for eight years after he left the Marine Corps. What Dave said was that for a while his job was great, good pay, steady work, and he was moving up the ladder. But then one of his superiors asked him to make an extra set of keys to the annex portion of the prison where he was assigned. Larson later learned the superior used the keys to release inmates who had done him favors. Now, do we know where they just... I know exactly what you're going to ask, and I have no idea. Like, were they actually let out of the prison, or were they just simply allowed to roam the grounds? Exactly. I don't know. Okay. My presumption is that they were allowed to be out of their cells when everyone else was on lockdown, but I am just guessing. That was my assumption as well, but I didn't know if you had read something. And of course, naturally, this was illegal behavior. And stupid. That's how prison riots start. Seriously, man. Seriously. So Larson also started noticing discrepancies in the books at the annex. Purchase orders for expensive tires that never seemed to find their way onto the state vehicles. Gross overbilling for gasoline, which today would probably run in the thousands and thousands of dollars at gas prices as they are. (laughs) Thefts of expensive tools and that sort of thing. Larson basically said he knew it would be easier to go along and keep his mouth shut, but it was really getting to him. He couldn't sleep at night. He was worrying about it, just the unethical behavior, etc. So one spring night in 1986, in the middle of a discussion group at his church, he broke down and started crying. After he talked it out, one of the elders who knew people in state government said he should take his information to L.B. Day, a state senator from Salem. Larson did. And that's how an investigation of alleged corruption and the corrections department got started. Journalist Stanford, who was reporting on this, pointed out that there had been prior investigations. But during this time, newspapers ran several articles that the prison was, quote unquote, ready to explode because of drug trafficking by inmates and prison employees. One inmate had already been stabbed to death over a drug deal, and a one-page story in the Salem Statesman Journal stated that inmates and guards implicated in marijuana trafficking at the Oregon State Penitentiary were only a part of a tangled web of illegal activity at the prison. Now, according to this article, one problem was that the head of the Oregon State Police in Salem was the brother-in-law of the security manager of the penitentiary at the time, when all of this was going on. Wait, 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 wait. Are you telling me a government employee was engaged in nepotism? (laughs) That doesn't happen. (laughs) I know. This was a rare occasion, and I think they all apologize for it. (laughs) Exactly. Now, for a while, Dave Larson, this was the prison guard who had reached out to State Senator Day, said that Senator Day started applying pressure to the state law enforcement agencies, and it looked as if the investigation might go somewhere. Once the word got out, Kath, that Larson was talking to the authorities, 
Other corrections employees who were aware of the corruption within the system, not only did they pass along information to him, some of them even signed affidavits. Impressive. That's impressive. Like you would think he would be shunned. That's impressive. Yeah. But then, Kath, about six months after Larson had first spoken with the senator, Senator Day died of a heart attack. For all practical purposes, the investigation now was over. Exactly. There was no pressure left. Right. At the end of the day, the senator's investigation resulted in two guards being convicted of selling drugs, another of theft, and a captain was demoted for allowing a nephew to falsify his employment application. Nepotism. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) As far as Larson was concerned, the whole thing smelled. He knew what he'd given Senator Day, as well as what the senator had dug up on his own, and it was Senator Day's opinion that the corruption went far beyond a few low-ranking prison guards. Now, among other things, Larson had given Senator Day an affidavit that provided information about a high-ranking politician whose construction business had used inmate labor, but there was never an investigation. So when a new corrections director was appointed in the spring of 1987, as he's described a big fellow from New Mexico (laughs) by the name of Michael Frankie, Larson asked for and received an audience. Now, for Larson Kath, it wasn't easy for him to do because by this time, he and his wife had already received several death threats. Oh, for sure. He's a prison guard snitching. Right. Now, he documented all of these and passed them on to his superiors, and all of his superiors said, yeah, nothing we could do. Sorry about that. Right. Too bad, so sad. Mm -hmm. I think that was exactly what was written in his (laughs) HR file, if I remember correctly. (laughs) I think you're exactly correct. It was odd. Now, according to Larson, Michael Frankie listened to him and told him he would take care of it. A year later... Michael Frankie was dead. On June 26, 1989, five months after Michael Frankie's death, journalist Stanford reported that shortly before 11 a.m. on the morning of June 16th, journalist Stanford reported that shortly before 11 a.m., approximately 10 days prior, Johnny Krause, now that's the man who looked like a potential suspect, was allowed to meet with Marion County D.A. Dale Penn just like he told Patrick Frankie, Michael's brother, that he was trying to do. Okay, so Krause comes to the district attorney's office with his lawyer, Steve Gorham. The DA is there, as is a Salem police officer, Tom Mason. Now, why was there a police officer there, Kath? Because the DA can't interview this witness. So imagine being a district attorney and you're trying an eventual murder case. The witness is on the stand and you're like, isn't it true that on such and such a day, you came to me and you told me this? And the guy's like, no. And the DA would be like, yes, you did. You said this. And the person on the stand is like, right. yeah, you don't remember it correctly. Yeah, there's a big fact. Okay, conflict. that makes sense. Yeah, the yeah. DA cannot be the one interviewing witnesses. So Salem police officer Tom Mason was present. According to journalistic sources, they all talked for five hours, during which Krauss told the DA, now again, this is through an investigator, Number one, that he didn't do it. Number two, that he knew who did do it. And number three, that it was a hit and had been ordered by two corrections officials. Krauss supposedly gave the DA the names of the two officials, but not the killer. That name he said he had given to his lawyer and would be revealed if and when he was released from custody. Krauss also supposedly informed these gentlemen that he knew where the clothes worn by the killer had been buried. So immediately after the meeting, they're like, let's go get the clothes. So he takes them to where the clothes are buried. And guess what? There's no clothes. No, no. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. No clothes. So the word from inside the penitentiary was that Kraus was nothing but hot air. And they were not just talking about Kraus's most recent story. They meant everything he said. On August 17th, 1989, 
Exactly seven months after Michael Frankie was murdered, Marion County District Attorney Dale Penn announced that investigators had found no links between alleged prison corruption and Michael's murder. So am I allowed to use sarcasm here? It depends on what you say. <laughs> I'll let you know. Maybe I'll cut it out. Maybe I won't. <laughs> you will cut it out. This is just very convenient. Yes, it is convenient. And because it's not a transparent investigation, we don't know what he's referring to. Well, exactly. We don't know who was doing the investigating into the corruption that Michael Frankie may or may not have found. Right. And it was done in a matter of months where Michael Frankie had been at it for a year and a half. Right. Penn also said they looked into the 1986 investigation that was occurring when State Senator Day had spoken with the prison guard, Dave Larson. Mm -hmm. Penn said that they knew of no witnesses or piece of evidence which would establish or corroborate that there had been extensive corruption in the correction system. Remember, there were a couple of people who went to jail, but that wasn't the extensive corruption that Dave Larson was alleging or State Senator Day believed was occurring. Right. And he said they also did not find anything that showed present or former Corrections Division employees had anything to do with Michael Frankie's murder. So, Kath, a little over a month later, on September 25th, 1989, now more than eight months after Michael Frankie's murder, it was reported in the Oregonian that a young woman waiting for an appointment in the Marion County District Attorney's Office heard loud voices and looked up to see District Attorney Dale Penn standing in a doorway with his back to the woman talking to someone in the room. She heard him say, quote, it's out now. We have 24 hours to do damage control, end quote. D.A. Penn then noticed the woman and slammed the door shut. So stay tuned for part two to find out what had happened and what the damage control needed to be about. This will be available to you next week. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.